Thanks for joining us for this message from Shades Valley Community Church in Homewood, Alabama. We pray that you are blessed by it. If you'd like to know more about Shades Valley and its ministries, you can visit us at shadesvalley.org. Good morning. Um, I'm going to read the scripture reading for today. I'm not going to lie. They said, oh, 1 Corinthians. And I was like, oh, cool. I don't know where things are. So even when they said 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1 through 13, I was like, oh, this is going to be so great. And then I read it and was like, oh. So just be ready. I can't wait to hear what this is going to be today, Jonathan. <laughs> uh, but it is the word of the Lord, and it doesn't return void. And it will do what he wants it to do. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you already, sorry, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we are grateful for all of your word. For all of it is for your glory and our good. And I pray that your spirit who inspired the word would illuminate it for us this morning so that we may see more of your glory and see how this is for our good. We love you. Pray these things in the name of your son, our Passover lamb, Jesus, by the power of your spirit. Amen. If you haven't already, I do invite you to open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, which is a turning point uh, in this letter. If you've been with us through our study through the letter so far, you know that through the first four chapters, Paul has been calling the Corinthians to be who God says they are, saints. That's the entire point of the letter, to call them out, to call us out, to be who God saved us to be, saints, saints, set apart people, a people saved and set apart for God. Because here's the deal. We've seen that for the Corinthians, they haven't been set apart at all. They have been blending in with the culture of their city that surrounds them. A, a self-indulgent, self-sufficient, self-promoting culture. Like what we've seen is them embrace a way of life that their culture says is wise. And so Paul has been calling them to instead embrace the foolishness of following Christ. 
And now he shifts gears, and in chapter 5, he starts applying this call to specific issues that the Corinthians are facing. And he, he dives right into the deep end. Like, Park's right. 1 Corinthians 5 is a hard passage. But honestly, Shades, the rest of this letter is hard. Like, buckle up, because from here on out, things are going to get real uncomfortable. But I promise, I promise, Paul only aims to make Corinth and us uncomfortable so that we might ultimately know true comfort in Christ. Like, Paul confronts, that's what he's going to do for the rest of the letter, he's going to be confronting the ways we foolishly embrace worldly wisdom that ultimately leads to death. He's going to be confronting all of that so that we might see how to wisely embrace the foolishness of Christ that ultimately leads to life. So, let's dive into the deep end with Paul this morning in chapter 5. And in chapter 5, that deep end is called discipline, church discipline. This isn't something that we like to talk about, not something that most churches do talk about. And, and I don't know, we all come to church, we all come to Scripture carrying our own baggage. And I know that for a lot of us, even just bringing up the topic of church discipline can be painful. Because many of you may have been wounded in the name of church discipline. But here's, here's what I want to ask you to do this morning. Don't pull back. Don't pull back. I, I, I want to ask you to lean in. Lean in and let's listen together closely to what the Apostle Paul has to say. Because if we will, I do believe that we can see discipline is actually life-giving. I know that's not how it feels. At least at, least at first. Discipline feels like death, like something that's not life-giving at all. So already this passage instinctually feels like foolishness to us. But Shades, this is why. This is why Paul writes 1 Corinthians 5, so that we might see the wise design of discipline and how it is actually life-giving. See that with me. Paul's going to unpack it for us in three steps. The dispatch... The discipline and the design. The dispatch, the discipline, and the design. For all of my note takers, each of these three things is going to have three sub points, so you can follow along with me. All right. Step number one, the dispatch, or in other words, the report. I, I needed another D. I know it's reaching a little bit right there, but a dispatch is like a report that a news station receives from a reporter in the field, and that's what we get right here. Verse one, it's a dispatch. It's a report from somebody on the ground in Corinth. Verse one. It's actually reported that there's sexual immorality among you and of a kind that's not even tolerated among the pagans, among people who aren't believers in Jesus. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. So there's three pieces to this dispatch, and Paul finds each of them increasingly shocking. Okay, so first, he's heard that there's sexual immorality among the Corinthians. Porneia is the Greek word. It's, it's a catch-all term, basically for any sexual practice outside of a sexual union between a husband and a wife. It just kind of catches 
everything outside of that. And it's really actually not surprising at all that there would be sexual immorality among the Corinthian Christians. They're young Christians, it's a young church, and they live in a sex-saturated culture. I know, we can't relate at all. Their culture is, is so saturated in sexuality that uh, ancient Greek poet Aristophanes, he coined a term for sexual promiscuity. You know what the term was? To Corinthianize. Like, this was just the way their culture lived. And yet, it's the second piece of this dispatch that reveals why Paul is shocked. There's sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that's not tolerated even among the pagans. For a man has his father's wife. In other words, his stepmother. Like, such incest was illegal by Jewish law, of course. I mean, Leviticus 18, verse 8, Deuteronomy 22, verse 30, and several other places in the Old Testament law. But it wasn't just against Jewish law. This was actually against Roman law. And you got to understand, like, Greco-Roman culture was very sexually liberal. But they drew the legal line at incest. In fact, they did not just draw the legal line there. They found the practice abhorrent, and they wouldn't tolerate it. Yet the Corinthians not only tolerate this man, they celebrate him. And that's the third piece of this dispatch that Paul finds most shocking of all. A man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant puffed up, proud that this guy's a part of your congregation. Like, like can, can you hear Paul's disbelief? He's way more in shock over the Corinthians' response. In fact, what he's addressing primarily here is the Corinthians' response. Like, how can the Corinthians be arrogant over this man that even their culture would condemn? How? How is this them blending? We said they've been blending in with their culture. How is this them blending in with their culture? Scholars offer up a, a host of different answers to these questions. We don't have time to go through them all, but the, the one that I find most convincing is that it is most likely this, this man uh, was wealthy, a social elite. Why do I think that's most likely? Well, remember, remember, the first four chapters of this letter, Paul has been confronting the primary way that the Corinthians were importing their city's culture into the church. What was that primary way? They were seeking social status by rubbing shoulders with those that they considered to be elite. Within the church, if there was a teacher or another member, anyone that would seemingly boost their status, they were going to rub shoulders with them. And so it makes sense that Paul would begin chapter 5 addressing one of the most blatant ways that they have been doing this. Rubbing shoulders with this man because it boosts their status. This is the kind of guy, wealthy, socially, it's the kind of guy that their culture would praise. The kind of guy that their culture would actually, even though they don't tolerate incest, they'd be willing to overlook it in order for this guy's status to boost their own. That doesn't happen in our culture anymore. We are definitely not more willing to overlook immorality among the rich and the popular and the wealthy 
because rather than confront them, we'd like to use them to boost our own social standing. Like, this actually helps to make sense of why the Corinthians would be arrogant, puffed up, and proud that this man is a part of their congregation. They wouldn't be arrogant over what he's doing with his stepmother. That wouldn't gain them social standing. Their culture would look down on that. No, but like their city, they would be willing to overlook this man's sin in order to brag about being associated with someone of his status. That is how they're blending in with the culture of their city. And we have to ask ourselves, like, do we, the church today, do we still do the same thing? Like, are, are we willing to excuse or ignore blatant, open, unrepentant, rebellious sin because we get some benefit from the person committing it? For example, is the modern church willing to tolerate abusive leadership as long as the pastor is gifted, attractive, successful, causing their church to grow? So we'll sweep sin that should be repented of under the rug. Or... Can you think of any cases lately that would reveal the church has been more willing to protect victimizers and hush up victims so that our institutional reputation won't be tarnished? Or let's, let's bring it down closer to home locally. In the name of protecting peace and unity... Are we, am I, willing to, to just not engage in accountability? Because I don't want to rock the boat. I don't want to upset the peaceful atmosphere that we have in our church that, that, that gets uncomfortable. And, and if I confront somebody, it, it, it could make them leave. And then they might spread rumors that we're this legalistic, self-righteous, unforgiving church. In other words, Shades, what I'm saying is there are all kinds of reasons that we don't want to deal with sin in our midst. Because dealing with it feels like death. We could lose leaders. We could lose social status. We could lose members. So not dealing with it, at least temporarily, feels like life. Shades, that's a lie. It's a lie, and it won't last. Because the reality is that not dealing with sin leads to death every time. Every time. And dealing with it is precisely what leads to life. And that's why Paul shows us how to deal with sin in our midst through discipline. This is the second step that Paul takes in chapter 5. He's shown us the dispatch, now the discipline. We don't, we don't like this. We don't like to talk about church discipline because it feels wholly negative to us. We don't like to talk about it because we value in our culture extreme individualism. Like nobody can tell me what to do but me. So anytime anybody tries... I, I bristle 
against that. Shades, that's the way of our culture. That is not the way of discipleship. Discipleship is discipline. Formative and corrective. Discipleship is formative discipline. It's teaching. It's pointing in a way that we should go in following Christ in the way to life. That's formative discipline. And it's corrective discipline. When we don't follow Christ, there's correction, course correction, so that we stay on the path to life. Corrective is what Corinth needs right now. So Paul has shown us the dispatch. Now number two, the discipline. Look at the end of verse two. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Is what we call church discipline. Member of this church is living in unrepentant rebellion, and the church is responsible to hold that member accountable, even removing them ultimately from membership if they refuse to repent. And our, our immediate thought is that this sounds so harsh, but shades, Paul's words only get stronger, and hearing them only gets harder. Look at verses 3 through 5. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I've already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. And I'm just like, what is going on, Paul? Like, you sound so judgmental. Holier than thou. Downright vindictive. I mean, Deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh? That definitely sounds like death. Shades, it's not. It's discipline. And I promise it has a life-giving design. We need to see discipline rightly, and I think we can if we pay close attention to three things that Paul says. Mourning, membership, and meals. Mourning, membership, meals. First, morning. Not like first thing in the morning. Morning like weeping. Verse 2. You're arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Paul is not being maliciously judgmental. Like what's happening breaks his heart. And he says it should break the Corinthians too. They should mourn. Grieve over this man's rebellion. Rebellion's what it is. Like, like, this isn't just sin. This is flagrant sin. I know, like, we have this idea, or there's a saying that passes around, like, all sin is the same. And there is an angle from which that's true. All sin separates us from God. But shades, all sin is not the same. A white lie is not the same as genocide. It's not. And they don't have the same consequences. Not horizontally, anyway. What's going on with this man isn't just sin. It's flagrant rebellion. That's so important for us to see. Paul's not being nitpicky and holier than thou right here. He knows that we all sin. He he himself will call himself the chief of sinners. And and most of the time, 90%, I'm making up statistics. I hate statistics. A ton of the time. 
Our sin does not lead to church discipline. Why? Because of repentance. The Holy Spirit convicts us, and we repent. Listen, listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. This is a different discipline situation, and it's one where the person disciplined repents. Listen to what he says. You should turn and forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. That, that, that's the life-giving end of discipline. But this man that we've got right here in 1 Corinthians 5, he's not repenting. He's rebelling. And that is when the church is supposed to lovingly step in, mourning over sin and longing with tears for repentance. In fact, Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18 is probably the most well-known passage on church discipline. And it outlines, Jesus there outlines for us what this stepping in should generally look like. It goes into much greater detail. Jesus says that when a brother or sister sins against you, go to them one-on-one. Start small and personal. If they won't listen, try again by taking one or two people with you. If they still won't listen, then and only then do you bring it to the church. And if they still won't listen to a church that is mourning and grieving and pleading with them, then they are to be removed from membership. Like, can you see how patient that process is and that it's lovingly aimed at repentance and reconciliation. And you may be thinking, yeah, Jonathan, I see that. But in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul skips that patient process. He just moves straight to the end. But Shades, that's because the process that Jesus lays out in Matthew 18 is for determining if someone is unrepentant and living in rebellion? Will they repent when someone just comes to them kindly, lovingly? If not, when a brother or sister or a couple come? If not, when the church pleads? It's a process for determining if they are unrepentant and living openly in rebellion. Whereas in Paul's case, this man living openly, publicly in rebellion was already a known fact. Like this man would not repent. That's why they are to remove him from the community and not with judgmental joy, but with mourning. They remove him from membership, which is the second thing that we need to look at closely if we are to see discipline rightly. Second, membership. I know that in the first century, they probably did not do membership the way that we do. Have a class, fill out some paperwork, whatever. But the, even the term member that we use, it comes from this letter. It comes from chapter 12. When we say that we're all members of a church, we're not talking about being members in the way we would say we're a member of a country club. We're talking about being a member like fingers are a member of a body. We are this, this body that does life together and while they may not have had a membership role, they understood what in and out meant. Church discipline has to do with church membership. Uh, a church receiving you, if I was going to try and give you a metaphor, a church receiving you into membership or as a member, it's like a, it's like a U.S. embassy on foreign soil. 
you're visiting a foreign country, you come to the embassy and you say that you are a citizen of the United States of America. What that embassy does is they examine your claim and then they affirm it and they receive you. The church is like an embassy of the kingdom of God, an outpost of the kingdom of God in the foreign country of this world where Satan currently reigns as the God of this world, 2 Corinthians 4.4. And so when any of us claim to be a citizen of the kingdom of God, the local church examines and affirms our claim by receiving us as a member. You claim to belong to Jesus. We agree. Yes, you belong to Jesus. You claim to belong to Jesus' people. So yes, you belong with us. But if we then, if I begin to live in a way that the church can no longer affirm that claim, I'm living in open, unrepentant rebellion against Christ. That's when church discipline takes place. And a church grieves as it says, we can no longer affirm that you are a member of the kingdom because you are living as if the enemy were your king. That's why, Shades, that's why Paul tells the Corinthians to deliver this man to Satan in verse 5. It's another way of saying, remove him from your midst. It's, it's, a, it's language of sacred space. God's people dwell with him in his kingdom. There's only one other kingdom. If this man is going to be removed from their midst, then they are turning him over to the kingdom of the enemy. And did you notice it's just him? Like all of Paul's instruction about removing this man from their midst, it's just about him. The stepmom who's involved is never mentioned. Look at verse 3. Paul says, I have already pronounced judgment on the one did such a thing. And I want to be like, Paul, it takes two to tango, man. Why just this man? Apparently, it's because only this man is a member of the church. I think that's confirmed by what Paul unpacks in verses 9 to 13. Skip down towards the end of the passage. Verses 9 to 13. I think this tells us why. If the, if the stepmother is not a member of the church, I think this tells us why Paul wouldn't confront her. Paul says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, like people who don't know Jesus, or the greedy, or the swindlers, or the idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother or sister. If they are guilty of sexual immorality, or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. So, apparently Paul had written Corinthian, the Corinthians before we ever get 1 Corinthians. It's some, some letter that we no longer have access to. And apparently in that letter, they had misunderstood some of his instructions. They thought Paul didn't want them to associate with anybody who lived a lifestyle of sexual immorality. And they're like, Paul, we live in Corinth. Like, that's not possible. So apparently they just ignored what Paul said and tolerated all sexual immorality, outside or inside the church. So now, Paul clarifies. Corinth, I, I wasn't talking about being the moral police of the world. 
and withdrawing from it. Like that's what you'd have to do. No. He wants them in the world to bear witness to Christ, which they can only do if they are distinct from the world. He wants them in the world, but not of it. What he meant was for them to exercise loving discipline when its members were living in open rebellion to Christ. Paul's saying, I didn't mean for you to think you needed to hold the world accountable, but one another accountable so that you may be a witness to the world. Shades, how often does the modern church get that backwards? Like, do we not act like it is our job to hold the world accountable? pointing fingers at all the sin we see, meanwhile unwilling to honestly deal with the sin in our own midst. We got this whole being a witness thing backwards. We're of the world, embracing the same sins, but not in the world, standing apart from it, hypocritically pointing fingers. Paul calls us to do the exact opposite. Be in the world, lovingly, up close, personal with people, without judging them. Sounds a lot like Jesus. But not of the world. Showing the world something different by lovingly pursuing Christ as a community, even when that means accountability. Is this not what Jesus did? Got up close and personal, without judgment, the people of the world. But who did he hold accountable those who claimed to know God and yet lived in open rebellion against him. Pharisees and such. Paul says, this, this is what I meant. Not that you hold the world accountable, but one another. And he spells out what that accountability through discipline looks like. He does it through the third thing we need to look at closely if we're going to see discipline rightly. We've looked at membership, looked at, what was the first one? I can't even remember now off the top of my head. Morning, thank you. We looked at morning, we looked at membership. Third, meals. Meals. Look again at verse 11. Spelling out what this accountability is supposed to look like. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or an idolater, reviler, drunkard, swing. Notice the way he's using these sins right here, this list, which is not meant to be an exhaustive list. These are examples. But he's not listing them as like acts. He's listing them as identifiers, idolaters, drunkards. In other words, people whose lives are openly rebelliously characterized by this. So if someone's confessing to be a brother or a sister, but they are living in these ways, don't associate with them. And I warned you not even to eat with such a one. Is Paul calling us to practice shunning right here? Like completely cut people out of our lives, no contact, like even, even eye contact, can't make eye contact with them if you run into them in public. No, I don't think that's what Paul means. The, the word for associate right here, it means to mix up with. In other words, it, it carries with it this idea of a close relationship. And then when Paul prohibits eating with a removed believer, 
I think what we'll see in verses 6 through 8, I think that there leads me to believe that he's specifically talking about the Lord's Supper, a, a meal that we take together as a way of saying we're in right relationship with God and with one another. We call it communion because we are communing with God and communing with each other. That's why removing someone from membership has classically been called excommunication, excommunion. It's a removal from communion, revealing that something isn't right in our relationship. It, it's like this. If you sin against my wife, heaven help you. But if, with my kids, they, they can tell you that uh, when they get disrespectful to Holly, I don't refer to her as their mother. I start calling her my wife, and I tell them no one talks to my wife that way. Like I go into defense mode big time. If you sin against my wife, the nature of our relationship will change. We're not going to sit down over dinner and act like everything's okay. That's true if you sin against my wife, and it's true if you sin against my Christ. Like we can't just keep coming to this table together pretending that everything is okay. Without confession and repentance, the nature of the relationship will change. I believe that's what Paul is saying right here. I don't think he's calling for the discontinuing of a relationship with an unrepentant brother or sister. I think he's calling for a change in that relationship. We can't go on if things are normal. We mourn, we're heartbroken, and that shows up in how we relate to them, lovingly calling them away from sin and death and back to life in Christ. That's the point. That's the purpose of discipline. That's its design, which is the final step that Paul takes in 1 Corinthians 5. He's shown us the dispatch, the discipline, finally, number three, the design. The design of discipline is life. For everyone. Life for the one rebelling. Life for the church. And life for the world. First, the design of discipline is life for the one in rebellion. I think we ironically see this in the final verse of the passage. Verse 13. Purge the evil person from among you. Paul's quoting Deuteronomy. This line shows up all over the place in Deuteronomy, and every single time that it does, it's calling for the death penalty. That's clearly not what Paul is doing here. And I believe he uses this line specifically to emphasize that discipline isn't ultimately aimed at death, but at life. I think we see that even more clearly if we go back up to verse 5, which we have not read in full up to this point. Let's read the whole thing this time. Verse 5, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. 
When Paul says, deliver this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, he's not talking about the destruction of his literal body, like deliver him over for the death penalty. No, whenever Paul contrasts flesh and spirit, he's talking about a life that follows God versus a life minus God. The flesh is life lived in rebellion against God, which is really life lived with Satan as king. So Paul says, turn this man over to the one for whom he's actually living. Like, Give him what apparently he wants. Why? In hopes that it destroys his flesh, destroys his rebellion, destroys his desire for Satan's kingdom. This this whole framework, it makes me think of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15 when the father has tried everything and he's at his last resort and so he finally gives his rebellious son what he wants, the world. And that's the very thing that ends up destroying that son's desire for the world. Paul says, give this man the kingdom that he wants in hope that it will destroy his desire for it. And his spirit may be saved. The design of discipline is for life, for the one in rebellion. And not just for him. Second, the design of discipline is life for the church. Life for the church. For all the Corinthians. Verse Six, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So Paul goes all Old Testament on us right here, talking about Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, both of which were put in place all the way back in Exodus when God rescued his people out of slavery in Egypt. Do you remember the story? Final plague was to come upon the land in order to force Pharaoh's hand to to finally let God's people go, and that plague was that the firstborn son in every house in Egypt would die, unless unless a lamb was sacrificed in that firstborn's place and its blood was put over the doorpost of the home. Then, covered by the blood of a lamb, death would pass over. And after this plague, Pharaoh didn't just set the people free. He made them hurry up and leave. Like they didn't even have time to leaven their bread and let it rise. They had to eat unleavened bread on their way out. So, every year, to remember God's salvation, the people were commanded to celebrate the Passover and to eat unleavened bread for a week. Now, you got to understand, unleavened or leaven and yeast, yeast is what we use to make our bread rise most of the time. These are not the same thing. Yeast we just add to the bread. Leaven is actually dough from the loaf that's been left out and allowed to ferment. And so every time you bake bread, you're keeping back a little bit of the dough for the next loaf. Over the, over the course of time, that leaven can actually pick up a lot of bacteria and impurities and things like that. And so in order to pull off this feast of unleavened bread, what they had to do once a year as they were preparing for Passover is clean every speck of leaven out of that house, lest it infect 
and spread through the new lump with all of its impurities. And so thus, leaven ends up becoming symbolic of sin in Scripture. Because to not clean it out is to disobey God's commands. And because of the way leaven spreads and infects everything that it, it touches. So, take all of that and hear what Paul is saying right here in 1 Corinthians 5. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. In other words, if you, if you tolerate open rebellion against Christ in your midst, it's going to spread Dealing with it may feel uncomfortable. It may feel like death. But death is what will actually happen if nothing is done. Like in Corinth, like imagine the scenario. If nothing is done, how will this man's rebellion influence other Christians? Especially those who are young in the faith. I actually think that when we get to the latter portion of chapter 6, we're going to see ways that it already is affecting other Christians in Corinth, because they will say that sin, particularly sexual sin, must not be that serious. Rebellion is okay. Christ will forgive us anyway. And they will live like the people they used to be, not the people who Christ saved them to be. His. Verse 7. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. Corinth, that's who you are. You're saints set apart by God. You're a people made clean in Christ. Live in line with that reality. You are Christ's, so be Christ's. Be who you are. This logic is not so strange to us. If you're married, this is how you live. I, Holly and I got married 20 years ago this Wednesday. Yeah, I pray that she is well uh, for Wednesday. She is still at home sick. So pray she is well by Wednesday. Uh, pray she's well today. <laughs> she's miserable. But here's the deal. When I got married to her, I received an identity. I am her husband. That is who I am. So I don't live as if I'm single. That would make no sense. I am her husband. So I need to live as her husband. I need to be who I am. Shades. You are unleavened. So cleanse out any old leaven through repentance and discipline. Be who you are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Jesus died as our substitute lamb and covered us with his blood to make us his. So let's be his. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, not being who we used to be, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Let us celebrate the festival of our Passover lamb, which we call communion. It's at the meal of Passover that Christ instituted this, our festival of our Passover lamb. Let us come to this table, not as the old leaven people we used to be, living in rebellion against God, that leads to death. No, let us come as who Christ saved us to be, people of sincerity and truth, not perfect people, people who are sincerely repentant. 
That word sincere is so important right here. Paul's under no illusion that we are perfect people, but that we are a sincerely repentant people with our hearts sincerely set on Christ. That leads to life. The design of discipline is life for the church. And not just for us. Third and finally, the design of discipline is life for the world. From the beginning of this passage all the way to its end, Paul wants the world to see the Corinthians living differently. Not not even the pagans live like this, he says. I want them to see you living differently, not hypocritically. Corinth, I don't want the rest of your city seeing you pretending to be holier than everybody else. No, I want them to see you actually humbly loving Jesus and loving one another enough to grieve when somebody goes astray and do everything it takes to bring them back to Christ, no matter how hard or uncomfortable. Our aim is true comfort in Christ for our rebellious brothers and sisters, and our aim is true comfort in Christ for the world. So we go to them lovingly to show them something different, to show them someone different, Jesus. We answer Paul's call at the end of this chapter to be in the world, but not of it. The design of discipline is for, is, it, it's life for the world, life for the church, and life even for those who rebel. Shades, may we as a body be willing to be uncomfortable so that all may know comfort in Christ. May we embrace the design of discipline, life. Now go into the world in peace. Have courage. Hold on to what is good. Honor all men. Strengthen the faint-hearted. Support the weak. Help the suffering and share the gospel. Love and serve the Lord in the power of the Holy Spirit. And may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with us all. Amen.